KBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for another edition of Political Rewind on a very big day for election campaigns. This is it, the final day that uh, candidates will be out uh, crisscrossing parts of the state uh, to get out their voters for tomorrow's election. It's a very dreary day right here in Atlanta, and I think it is across a good part of the state. Um, candidates are always, and their campaigns are always concerned about whether it's gonna, what weather is going to be like on election day. They worry that bad weather will drive people away from the polls. And it looks right now like there's going to be a lot of rain again uh, tomorrow in Georgia. So we'll see how that might affect turnout. We've got a great panel of journalists from across the state uh, here with us today. Let's get right to them to talk about what we see happening on this day before the election. I'm joined, as I always am on Mondays, by Patricia Murphy, a political reporter and columnist. She writes the Political Insider column that you read on Mondays, on Wednesdays and Sundays in the AJC. Um, and over, she oversees, of course, the jolt at uh, AJC.com. Patricia, um, this is it. Big, big day. This is it. It's like Christmas and what month is this? May. <laughs> yeah, May. Christmas May. and May. Yes, I, yeah, I that's how that's how May. hard you've been working. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you know it's funny you said that because I always thought the same thing as elections approach. I thought it's like Christmas on election day for political reporters. But thank you for being uh, with us. Uh, we're also joined today by Adam Van Brimmer, editorial page editor of the Savannah Morning News. Adam, you're down there in one part of the state that doesn't seem to be covered up by clouds and rain right now. How are you holding up with the election approaching tomorrow? I think everybody's ready. And we have had some uh, we have had some storms and some other stuff here. But, you know, the one thing about Savannah this close to the coast, if you don't like the weather, you wait 10 minutes because it's going to change. And I think yeah. most voters will take that approach tomorrow when they head to the polls. Well, we will be looking forward to hearing uh, a report from you on how things uh, look down there in Savannah. Uh, Chauncey Alcorn joins us again today. He's a state and a local political reporter for Capital B, an online news service um, that you can, Chauncey, I want to give the uh, URL for people if they want to read you. They can go to atlanta.capitalb, just the letter, news.org and read your reporting. Um, I got that right, don't I? Absolutely. Appreciate it. (laughs) I'm very glad to have you here. And we're joined by the veteran of many years of political coverage down in Columbus, Muskogee County, that part of the state, uh, Chuck Williams, the legend in uh, the Columbus area. How are you, Chuck? I'm doing well, Bill. I'm doing well. Patricia's right, and tomorrow's Christmas. I guess this makes Christmas Eve, and Santa Claus just canceled the trip because Governor Kemp's flying at 9.30, didn't, is not going to be here because of the weather. So so I guess I'm like everybody else. I'm getting ready for Christmas in May. <laughs> right. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, let's start with uh, uh, what we know about early voting. Uh, uh, as of the end of Friday, when it came to a conclusion, Patricia, it's pretty staggering. Um, our friend Ryan Anderson at Georgia Votes has crunched all the numbers. He says 859,200 people cast ballots early, which is 168% higher turnout than, uh, than uh, in the uh, 2018 primary election. That is just remarkable. Yes, it has been a just a huge jump in voter participation in in-person early voting. And I think we can all agree that's fabulous. Um, I have heard a number of Republicans say, we told you so. Senate Bill 202 is perfectly fine. It makes it so much easier to vote. 
Um, I want to caution that we still need to get the data on the early mail-in voting because SB202 mostly focused on early mail-in voting and absentee mail-in voting, and we don't know those numbers yet. But SB202 did create an extra Saturday, mandatory Saturday voting for counties Mm -hmm. that didn't already have that, and 4,000 voters participated in that, so that was good news. For those voters. Um, other than that, we know it's 57% people have pulled the Republican ballot, um, largely driven by those the huge primaries over on that side of, um, of the ballot. And um, a number of those were also Democratic crossover voters, meaning they voted in the last Democratic primary and have gotten over to the Republican ballot this time around uh, to cast a ballot in that race. Um, Chauncey, you filed a piece for Capital B, and I want, if you don't mind my reading your words back to you, I'll read one graph from that story. Black voter turnout this primary season is three times higher than it was in 2018, according to the Republican National Committee, a spokesman for the RNC citing voter demographic data from the second Secretary of State's office said that more than 150,000 black voters had submitted earlier absentee ballots as of uh, Monday. Um and, and there are the Republicans are spinning this, Chauncey, as you point out in your article, as and, and Patricia suggested it as a signal that it's ridiculous to think that votes votes were suppressed because of SB 202. On the other hand, you also report that fair fight action says, no, what this really says is people are determined to vote regardless of the obstacles put in their place. Chauncey. That's, yeah, couldn't you said it perfectly. Um, so there's been an, uh, a, an argument about this uh, all week long, as I've been reporting on it. Basically, uh, the Republican contention is that a lot of the uh, quote-unquote fear-mongering of, uh, by Democrats on the issue of voter suppression um, in the aftermath of 2020 and the passage of SB202 and other bills uh, was misplaced, uh, misguided, or in, in, their, in their words, disingenuous. A lot of the uh, voter registration activists uh, for New Georgia Project for um, Black Voters Matter and other grassroots organizations point out that they've been doing tons of work on the ground, um, voter education work, getting people out, uh, making sure they understood, um, you know, how to check and make sure that they were registered and to get to the, uh, you know, to get to polling stations early to avoid having issues on Election Day. So it's uh, it's still kind of up in the air to, to determine, in my estimation, you know, what this says about voter suppression going forward. Obviously, uh, more participation is always encouraging and good. Um, I think uh, a lot of the, uh, the grassroots voter registration activists are looking to see what happens tomorrow as a, as a greater indication of what it's going to look like heading into uh, um, the uh, general election. Um, Chuck, uh, give us some sense of what the, what the uh, fervor is about voting down your way in Muskogee County, but also add to that, if you don't mind, uh, Patricia mentioned the crossover votes, Democrats taking Republican ballots. And the anecdotal evidence, and Patricia wrote about it in a column, seems to be that they're, take, they're voting a, a Republican because they want to stop Donald Trump candidates from uh, succeeding, particularly uh, 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 Jody Heiss against Brad Raffensperger. Chuck, you can take all that on and more if you want. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll do my best, Bill. I think I've talked to Nancy Bourne. She's the director of registrations and elections down this way. We had rough numbers. We got 130,000 registered voters in Muskogee County. Like Chatham, like Bibb, like Richmond, we are a predominantly Democratic county down here. If you look at what happened, over 14,000 voted early in person, and over a couple 3,000 have turned in um mail-in ballots. But of those 14,000 that voted early in person over the three weeks they, that we had it, there were uh, two-to-one Democratic ballots pulled. So that held true down here, at least to what what you would expect. Now, the, in, you know, when you look at it, I don't know what will happen tomorrow on Election Day. You know, I know that I talked to a number of voters uh, last Monday, and you know, Democratic voters that I talked to, particularly African American Democratic voters, were pulling a Democratic ballot. The ones that seemed to be pulling the Republican ballot that, that said they were Democrats were what I would call progressives that 
were voting the anti-Trump, or some cases just point blank said, I'm voting for one person on the Republican side. Brad Raffensperger earned my vote two years ago, and that's why I'm voting a Republican ballot. And they know that with, with the Raffensperger race, there will likely be a runoff. So they wanted to have that ballot before weeks from now, is what some of them told me. Um, and, you know, it, it's just fascinating. I mean, it is fascinating to watch the dynamics of this because, you know, all of us think we know politics. We don't really know what's going on right now with the, with this electric. It is, it is like looking at an omelet that you just gave up on and turned into scrambled eggs. <laughs> Adam, uh, with that great comment from Chuck, tell us about Savannah right now. Well, I've got to, I got to preface this with an apology. We we had a big car assembly plant announcement down here last Friday, so I'm somewhat yeah. out of touch. But I know as of the first part of last week, uh, Chatham County, Savannah was bucking the trend. Our early voting numbers were pretty much in line with what we had seen in, in previous primaries back in 2020 and 2018. So what that means for us tomorrow remains to be seen. And we'll see in terms of absentee ballot numbers, again, as of last week, which they should know by then, it might even actually have been after the deadline to apply for an absentee ballot. We had not seen a, a tremendous uptick in terms of, of advanced voting, and that could mean busy day tomorrow at the polls for sure. Absolutely. Um, Patricia, uh, let's talk just for another minute about this Raffensperger uh, phenomenon that maybe seems to have been uh, developing um, uh, in in many parts of the state. Um, So uh, it's fascinating. I have unfortunately, during, you know, we've talked about Raffensperger as sort of being, quote, rewarded. I've used that term, I think, by uh, Democrats who are pleased that he uh, didn't go along with Donald Trump. But it's more than just rewarded. It's that they don't want to see, apparently, somebody like a... They don't want to see a Jody Heiss, who's an election denier, having a chance to win the race and be in the position of Secretary of State uh, to uh, have an influence on how 2024 would turn out, right? That's exactly right. I um, spoke with a number of voters who voted Democratic in the last election and pulled a Republican ballot this time around and asked them why they had done that. And every one of them said, um, I don't want Jody Heiss to have his hands on the election equipment. Um, Jody Heiss has been very clear that he supports Donald Trump, would have done something very different in 2020 under the exact same scenario if he had been Secretary of State. Um, And that was very alarming to these voters. You know, some of those voters also voted for Brian Kemp in the primary because they felt like he had done a similar job um, to Raffensperger. Some of them said, look, I cannot vote for another Republican. I'm sorry, I can't vote for Brian Kemp, but I am voting for Brad Raffensperger. And um, most of those voters said they would vote for him in November as well. Now, Raffensperger was basically considered roadkill in this state a year ago. I did a profile of him uh, really at the height of Donald Trump attacking him and reached out to a number of Republicans, his allies, to say, you know, could you weigh in on this? And they're like, "Uh, no, I can't. Nobody wanted to go. No Republicans wanted to go out on the limb for Raffensperger. Would it literally would not say a nice thing about him on the record. They were so afraid of Donald Trump. Um, so I think Raffensperger pushed through that. He still has very few allies in politics, and that might be okay with yeah. voters. That might be just fine with voters in that particular office. Um, the, we'll, we'll see what happens in this race, but Raffensperger is outperforming our expectations so far, and I think part of, part of that piece is because of um, the Democrats coming over and the moderate Republicans really fueling his uh, his rise. Uh, Chuck? Well, you know, what Patricia said is exactly what I'm finding. He has very few allies, but that is probably a strength in this for him because he is truly, even though he's got an R by his name, he, he feels like in, um, an 
independent in a lot of ways. Last week, I did a podcast with Jen Jordan, who's a state senator from Fulton County, who's running for uh, the attorney general's office. And I think I threw her off when I told her she didn't seem like a normal politician to me. And I compared her to Raffensperger. She said that was the first time she had ever been <laughs> compared to Raffensperger. But, it, you know, it, it was kind of, I mean, she's clearly partisan, but just she didn't have the normal politician feel. And Brad, and that's the vibe I've gotten from Raffensperger throughout the last five years. Oh, Chauncey, um, okay, let's sort of transition uh, using this as a, as a way to do that. So we're going to watch tomorrow to see whether Jody Heiss, with a strong endorsement, frequent endorsements, and condemnation uh, from, of, of Raffensperger from Donald Trump, can really elevate Heiss. Now, there are enough candidates in that race that it could easily go to a runoff, and it does. It's likely it'll be between uh, Raffensperger and Heiss. But what we're already learning in the governor's race is that Georgia voters, Republican voters, who seem to continue uh, to uh, be very strong Trump supporters, have said, at least in the governor's race, yes, but we don't necessarily think that his endorsement is one that we have to follow, certainly with Brian Kemp. So it's going to be interesting to see what the Trump influences in down-ballot races that he had, where he's made endorsements. Absolutely. And uh, as you, you, mo- you noted this earlier, um, I've seen, I've gone to a couple of campaign events. Um, there is certainly still a lot of fervor, um, and from my estimation, amongst the Republican base, um, you know, that uh, believes that the election um, was rigged or that uh, was stolen from Donald Trump. But it seems as though many of them um, have kind of turned the page on that, in my estimation. Um, uh, well, it, it's perceived. I, I know that during the debates, um, um, uh, former Senator Purdue kind of, you know, it almost sounded like he was speaking to Donald Trump at, at the beginning of, of a couple of these debates, calling the election rigged and pointing it out um, over and over again um, to, the, to the point it kind of seemed to annoy um, uh, Governor Kemp. It's like, you know, kind of, can we move on to something else? You know, he's kind of stuck in the past. Um, and I, while it's certainly, I think, the bigger issue for a lot of uh, folks – um, is a lot of the conservative bona fides. Um, Governor Kemp has done a great job of uh, kind of shoring up his conservative bona fides with the bills that he supported on issues, uh, hot button issues such as um, gun um, gun control or uh, open carry and things of that nature in the state of Georgia, um, critical race theory or divisive concepts as they as they ca- call it here in Georgia, and other um, you know kind of wedge issues that kind of mitigated a lot of the uh, culture war fervor that you've seen. Um, in other parts of the country, and, but um, as well as Georgia, uh, Florida being another key state for that issue as well. So I think he's done a good job of kind of shoring that up. It's interesting to me um, with Raffensperger because, yeah, he's kind of the guy that, you know, um, uh, people perceive to have betrayed the president more so than Governor Kemp. But uh, for, for better or worse, he seems to so far – to have uh, avoided any kind of, uh, you know, it's, he's still, it's still a very competitive race. So it'll be interesting to see if he's the first Secretary of State candidate who would um, effectively um, um, lose to an election denier. But, uh, but as of now, it doesn't appear that's going to be the case. Um, well, we'll watch that one. Adam, I have to be candid here. Over the past week, I have been getting uh, notes, emails, uh, some social media posts, from uh, listeners who are really upset about the fact that I've talked with other panelists, some of you have been on these panels, about the huge lead that the polls show Brian Kemp has over David Perdue, the most recent one being Fox News had uh, Kemp up, I think, 32 points. The AJC's poll had Kemp up by a wide margin earlier than that. These are are Purdue supporters, Adam, who are saying to me, stop talking about polls. The only poll that matters is on Election Day. We always hear that. Uh, But, Adam, let's speak to that. Uh, We all, as journalists, have been surprised in the past by the outcomes of some elections. I recall in 2002, I don't think any of us who were covering the state then expected that Sonny Perdue would beat Roy Barnes for a second term, um, Roy Barnes running for his uh, second term as governor. 
Surprises happen on Election Day. We should acknowledge that. But the Kemp lead looks really, really uh, impressive. Absolutely, it does. And, you know, one piece of this whole thing is everybody talks about how hard it is to poll when somebody is involved with Trump. Right. They say the Trump the Trump polls are are, uh, the, the Trump loyalists are underrepresented in polls so that when you see a poll, you don't necessarily it's not taking into effect and maybe the margin of error should be higher. Uh, and then David Perdue, of course, was in Savannah on Friday. He was campaigning with Sarah Palin. It was a it was an attempt at counter-programming to the Hyundai announcement in Bryan County, which was at three o'clock in the afternoon. And the uh, the Purdue uh, Purdue Palin thing was at two o'clock in the afternoon and Purdue and Palin were at the Savannah airport. So it was it, long story short, it was impossible to cover both events. So uh, we sent a, a reporter to Palin and Purdue, and at that event, Purdue said he was going to win the race tomorrow without a runoff. And uh, Sarah Palin, her take on polls was as follows, and I quote, the only thing polls are good for are strippers and downhill skiers. So <laughs> certainly we <laughs> we see how the Purdue camp feels about the polls that uh, I guess we're going to find out in, you know, what about 30 some hours, uh, how accurate that really is. Chuck, you know, I don't think I've ever seen a poll, Adam, that has a 32% margin of error. I mean, I mean, this is, and Governor Kemp was in LaGrange uh, um, Wednesday morning. And that was the day that that poll came out or just before that poll came out. And he had about 100 people up there, you know, including the chairman of Say One, the largest non-Hyundai family Kia supplier, Kia supplier in the region. They they made the metal fabrication for the cars. I mean, he's he was at that event. He was in the country, and he was at that event to see, just to see the governor. And you know, and it's interesting to watch. I mean, I don't know what polls tell you, but I know what fly rounds sort of tell you. Governor Purdue, uh, or Senator Purdue, was in uh, Columbus before he flew over to Savannah uh, Friday morning. Um, he had a crowd at the Columbus airport, and I use the word crowd loosely, seven people. Seven people showed up at a fly-around. We've all covered those fly-rounds. There's usually three or four dozen. There's business leaders. There's pol- political leaders of the same persuasion. There's the party loyalists. Not even the leaders of the party, local party apparatus were there. I mean, that, you know, and I know they're going to sit there and I know that the senator's people are going to sit there and say, well, you're just, you're, you're making something up. It's, this is what happened. I mean, and, you know, that's, that's a poll of its own in many ways. I mean, and are that many people going to turn around and vote for the senator, but they're not willing to put their name on it? Yeah, we don't have to look at the polls to have a good feel for this race. And um, But you're exactly right, Bill. Polls surprise us every time. I don't think anybody thought Andre Dickens was going to be the mayor of Atlanta and certainly not yeah. win by the margin that he won by. Um, if you had asked anybody the day before the you know regular season election day. So we don't know what's going to happen. I don't like to predict what's going to happen. I will tell you what I see on the ground. Um, to Chuck's point, I went to I've been to Brian Kemp events. There are typically as many people as, as will fit in the room. It's about 100, 150, sometimes more, sometimes a little less. Um, but they're always crowded. He is always surrounded by the state legislators from that area. Brian Kemp has won the endorsement of all but six GOP members of the legislature out of more than 140. And those are Republicans who support Donald Trump. Brian Kemp has outraised David Perdue 10 to 1. Um, Brian Kemp has more events, bigger events. Um, he just has the energy. He has the enthusiasm right now. You go out to these events, you talk to regular voters, um, and they like Donald Trump, okay, but they see what, what Brian Kemp has done in their 
areas, has done on conservative issues. Um, and it just doesn't feel like David Perdue has made the case to unseat this governor who would be otherwise popular if not for the one piece of election. Um, and we'll find out what happens. Um, but it, when you go to these events, you, they feel starkly different. And that's our information yeah. along with the polling. Adam, uh, weigh in before I've got to get to our first break. Sure. I just also wanted to note that Brian Kemp is feeling incredibly confident. I was able to spend about 20 minutes with him last Friday uh, when he was in town ahead of the, the, of the Hyundai announcement. And I had never this close to the election against a serious challenge. It seemed like he was running out of post. I mean, he was totally relaxed, totally talking about, you know, his economic success, totally talking about the success he's had with his his culture warrior issues. He he has threaded the needle, it seems like, with the Republican base, and he knows it. And he's ready for he's ready for Abrams and, and Patricia and others on this call. Please weigh in. It, it seems like that that he is totally focused beyond Tuesday, and Tuesday is just uh, it's it's already a given. All right, um, let's take our first break of the show. We have so much more to talk about with Election Day coming up tomorrow. So uh, we'll come back and continue that conversation in just a moment. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. On this day before Election Day, Chuck Williams uh, joins us from WRBL-TV in Columbus, Adam Van Brimmer, Savannah Morning News, Chauncey Alcorn, a reporter, for Capital B and Patricia Murphy uh, on the show uh, today. One last thing about the governor's uh, race, GOP side, Patricia. If you read the national media or watch cable news, a a lot of them now, because Mike Pence is coming in for Kemp tonight, uh, which is in itself a bold statement by uh, the former vice president, and because Trump continues to support, to some extent, Purdue, he's holding what they're calling a tele-rally for Purdue tonight. The national media is kind of calling this the first real proxy war between Pence and Trump. I would argue with that just a little bit uh, in terms of how we have been looking at the election because Kemp has had this enormous lead over uh, Purdue long before Mike Pence ever got involved in this race. But the fact of the matter is, by tomorrow or by Wednesday morning, if in fact Kemp wins by a large margin, it is going to be perceived as having been a battle between I, I think Mike Pence and Donald Trump, yes? Oh, I think absolutely. And it is not a big political <laughs> risk for Kemp to support, I'm sorry, for Pence to support Brian Kemp. I mean, he looks like he's going to win. I think we can say that. It is a big political risk for Pence to come down so visibly and make a point. He doesn't have to do this. It is not necessary, but he is making a point to come down and to do it on the most high profile evening of the race, the night before the primary, um, against Donald Trump's chosen nemesis. Um, So this is Mike Pence taking a huge step away from Donald Trump. And I think that's very, very relevant. We just happen to be the, you know, we just happen to be the the scene for the first stage, the first act of that play. Um, He also told Jonathan Martin with the New York Times that he is open to running for president in 2024. Mm -hmm. And this is really seen as laying the groundwork to open that conversation as well. Yeah, I was, Chauncey, that's exactly what what I wanted to ask about. It does seem like this is Pence saying, I'm I'm an independent man now, and I'm declaring I may very well be a candidate running against Donald Trump if he decides to get in the race, Chauncey. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see. Um, I think uh, a lot of the uh, political cachet for for President Trump, um, while there certainly is a lot of uh, still people who are loyal to him, um, both you know, in the party apparatus and amongst the grassroots. Um, it's, it, a lot of it, from, um, from my vantage point, has to do more with the kind of his championing of the, of, of the base issues, cultural issues. Um, and, uh, you know, some of the personality stuff that Trump has done, you know, while he was president and now 
that seem to be more centered around who he is and what he wants and things of that nature. You're seeing a lot more rejection of that um, amongst the conservative base, both in Georgia and across the country, where they're kind of like, okay, we know the election, you believe you won, and, uh, you know, we're kind of past that now. We're trying to look forward. And um, I think that there has kind of been some bifurcation there, but um, certainly there's still a lot of of uh, pro-Trump sentiment amongst the conservative base, and it'll be interesting to see how that plays out um, going forward. Chuck? You know, Bill, to me, this feels like the former vice president has ripped a page out of his old boss's playbook. If you go back four years, Kemp was in the runoff with Casey Cagle, already had the momentum, was starting to surge ahead of Cagle, and Trump jumps in, and all of a sudden it becomes this landslide in the runoff. It almost feels like that's what Pence is doing right now, what Trump did four years ago in the Kemp-Cagle matchup. I, I don't know if anybody else thinks that, but that's what it looks like to me. Well, I, Adam, let me throw something out at you that I think, Patricia, you, you or one of your colleagues wrote about. Uh, Trump had last-minute endorsements for three Republican members of Congress, uh, uh, running his total now of endorsements in Georgia up to 13 Republicans on their side of the ballot. And all three are people who are going to win their elections handily. So, Adam, Trump in some ways seems to be protecting himself against what could very well be a devastating loss by David Perdue. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he endorsed Buddy Carter here, and Buddy Carter's running out of post. So I don't exactly know what the value of the endorsement is. But I think what you're seeing with Pence and and what you're seeing with the primaries we've already seen is that Trump does not have as firm a grasp on the Republican Party as it is made out to be. And I think you're seeing people like Mike Pence. I think you're going to see people like uh, Ron DeSantis going to see these others that realize that, hey, there's a reason that Donald Trump lost two years ago. Do we really want to roll the dice again two years from now, or do we want to move on from that, maybe find other candidates that maybe embrace some of Trump's populist uh, policies, but who aren't just repulsive to a lot of uh, independents and moderates on both sides of the aisle? And I think that's really where we are right now. And, And is Mike Pence that guy? I don't know. But certainly in Georgia, he's going to run the flag up and see see how everybody responds. Patricia, let's move on to a couple of other races that we're going to be following um, uh, pretty closely uh, tomorrow. What are you making right now? Uh, you know, Republicans in the legislature drew new lines that forced uh, the 6th District, Lucy McBath, Democratic Congresswoman Lucy McBath, to move over to the 7th. Well, she didn't have to, but they put her in a position where she wasn't likely to win re-election in what was now going to be a Republican 6th. So McBath goes over to run against uh, Carolyn Bordeaux. We now have two incumbents running against one another. Uh, McBath is the one who's gotten a, a big share of endorsements, including Jim Clyburn, the most influential member of Congress, maybe in the South, certainly in South Carolina and the Southeast. Where do we see that race headed tomorrow? So that race also includes a state representative named Donna McLeod. And so I am not convinced that that doesn't go to a runoff. Um, We don't have any reliable polling. We truly have no idea what's going to happen there. But it's a huge test of the direction of the Democratic Party, I think, because we have McBath, who is quite a bit more progressive, incredibly outspoken and totally identified with gun control and gun safety because of her son's story, his murder. Um, and you have that uh, juxtaposed against Carolyn Bordeaux, who is much more um, bookish, uh, does a lot of grassroots work. She's in that district all the time, all over the place. But she is more reserved in personality. She's less splashy. She's seen as being um, a little bit more wonkish and definitely more moderate. And she took a stance over the summer to slow down the progress of the Build Back Better bill um, uh, in order to sort of split it off from the big package of uh, progressive goodies that uh, uh, progressives really wanted to have. Um, And that really set these two apart. And so the choice of Democratic voters in the fastest growing district, becoming very, very diverse very quickly, um, that's going to tell us a lot about who our Democratic voters are. And when given a choice, they don't have a lot of choices lately, but when given these two choices, who are they going to pick? Chauncey, here's one of the things that I'll be fascinated to watch here. In 2018, 
Stacey Abrams proved to us that you can uh, really do well in a statewide race by running as a more progressive Democrat. She built a coalition of progressive Democrats. And there are some ways, and I don't want to go too far with the analogy, in which that's who Lucy McBath is, whereas Carolyn Bordeaux is a little bit more like um, the more moderate Democrats who tried to build, build their coalitions differently than with uh, progressive voters. So when Patricia says we're going to learn a lot about what that Democratic district now looks like in terms of their appetite for a progressive as opposed to a moderate, I think she's really on the money. Absolutely. I think this is going to be one of, for, for me personally, one of the more fascinating races uh, for tomorrow, uh, particularly on the Democratic side. It's going to kind of signal where the, where the uh, party is headed um, and, uh, you know, the viability of these progressive candidates. Um, Ms. McBath is, I believe, kind of the more nationally known um, uh, uh, representative in the race. Um, she's um, obviously her, her son's um, vigilante murder. Um, at the hands of a, of a, of a gun-toting white guy, um, you know, several years ago, has kind of made her a very compelling figure, two-time um, breast cancer survivor. She did a very good job recently uh, speaking on Capitol Hill about her own personal experiences with abortion as we talk about that issue here. Um, she's a very passionate speaker, very, um, you know, engaging individual. Um, and, yes, um, certainly nationally she has a lot more cachet, I believe, if, if you're asking my personal view on that. However, locally, um, um, I would point out that um, Ms. Bordeaux has done a great job of courting a lot of local endorsements um, from um, leaders in Gwinnett County. I think that the, uh, one of the uh, standout moments during this race was during their last debate, where um, Ms. Bordeaux and Ms. McLeod pointed out, uh, kind of took uh, Ms. McBath to task over um, not fighting it out in their own district and, you know, um, uh, effectively um, giving a seat in their in their estimation to the Republicans as we fight, or as they fight for the uh, you know as the Democrats fight to maintain control of the House. So that's going to be an interesting race. You're going to have a lot of um, competing issues as it relates to race. Um, Gwinnett has been a one of the districts that's become a lot more diverse um, in uh, recent years, and uh, you know um, Ms. Bordeaux is the only um, um, non-black individual running in that in that race and that's going to be interesting there but she had a lot of the local black leaders yeah. endorsing her over McBath who's come over from another district but I don't I it's a it's a huge toss-up while there has been a, it was a poll um I think it was data for progress that had um Ms. McBath out in front even though she's not even the incumbent um by like nine points I think that was like in February or March uh but uh I, I, it's a toss-up it's going to be an interesting fight yeah, and I think we always we are always a little bit wary of polling in uh, when you've got a, such a small population of people likely uh, being uh, polled, like in a congressional district. Um, so yeah, we'll watch that with interest. Adam, one thing's for sure: Republicans yeah. in the legislature, when they knew drew, drew their new lines, uh, have succeeded most likely in winning back uh, the sixth district, which uh, was in many ways. Uh, the heart, uh, along with Gwinnett County, of the Democratic takeover of uh, North those portions in North Georgia, Adam. Yeah, they, they certainly are doing everything they can to shore up things as best they can in, in terms of, of having uh, the Republicans having a foothold there as it continues to go blue. And, you know, we got 10 more years of growth if it, things keep going the way they are, then they're going to have to do some do some snaggling again in, in 2030. That's assuming the Republicans are still in control, but certainly they seem to be in position to do so and, and set things up for the future. Chuck, the other district, of course, uh, is down your way. We, we're not, it isn't going to be a primary battle, but Republicans have redrawn the second district in such a way that it makes Sanford Bishop's long tenure as the Democratic congressman there at least a bit jeopardized. Um, What's happening in that race in the primaries down there? Uh, Sanford's going to probably get out of Democrat primary. No question about that. Uh, I don't think. Yeah. There, there's, there are a couple of guys on the Republican side, um, and sorry, names are leaving me right now. Um, but one is a West Point grad, African-American, who is running a lot of TV down this way. And it's a weird... It, uh, district to run TV in because you got to run in Columbus, you got to run in Macon, you got to run in Albany. 
you probably need to run in Tallahassee and you probably need to run in Dothan, Alabama to cover the whole district. That's kind of, I mean, you don't have one Atlanta TV station down here. You got a lot. And there's, you know, that district is what, two points now? I think I've seen plus two Democratic. So I had a national Democratic strategist tell me over the weekend that the Democrats were getting ready for a really bad bloodbath in 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 uh, November. If that happens, Sanford could be one of the casualties of it. And Congressman Bishop's been in there 30 years. He's now the dean of the Georgia delegation. He has been a chameleon in a lot of ways. He's been able to represent farmers and ag interests. Uh, but, you know, if that district truly is closer to a toss-up, and I think it is, because it's a weird district. It's got West Macon, Albany, South Columbus, and then runs down to the line, and it's got Thomasville back in it. If you remember mm -hmm. 10 years ago, it was Thomasville and a preacher from down that way that gave him the strongest run for his money that he's had probably in the last two decades. So, yeah. I mean... I'm not going to say I'm not going to go so far as to say Congressman Bishop is on the ropes, but I'm telling you right now, everybody that'll be a race you'll see CNN pop up and and watch as a you know as you start talking about is the house flipping that'll be a race that's on the radar of that. Uh, uh, I just checked very quickly on Ballotpedia. There are six Republicans. <laughs> Uh, in the race to uh, oppose uh, Sanford Bishop uh, in uh, November. So it'll be interesting to see how that comes forward. But that's really a race for the fall uh, more than it is right now. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way and come back with more as we anticipate Election Day tomorrow. Patricia Murphy, let's just very quickly, uh, with the little time we have remaining, uh, talk about a couple other races that we're going to be watching on uh, the ballot tomorrow. I was interested in the fact that, uh, you know, Brett Stevens and Gail Collins, who do this terrific dialogue in the New York Times one day a week, uh, they published their latest dialogue this morning. And Brett Stevens was saying it'll be interesting to see whether Marjorie Taylor Greene can win her primary race in the 14th <laughs> district. I, I thought he was a much shrewder an analyst of politics and all that. <laughs> yes, I hope he has something else to keep him interested tomorrow because I don't think there's going to be a problem with that. That doesn't mean that Marjorie Taylor Greene does not have her loud, loud detractors in her uh, district. However, uh, it's Marjorie Taylor Greene against five other Republicans. And um, we they will obviously be splitting amongst themselves the anti-Marjorie Taylor Greene vote. And we have not seen any indication that she's in enough trouble that she wouldn't make it out of her primary without a um, without a, a runoff. Uh, there are three Democrats running uh, who will challenge her. The winner will challenge her in November. One of them has raised $8 million. Um, he's very little known. Uh, he spent almost all of it on consultants. So we don't know exactly where this race is going, except I'm confident Marjorie Taylor Greene will still have her job by Wednesday. Yeah, the name we know best, I think. Marcus Flowers has raised all that money, as you point out. Wendy Davis, who's a Democratic National Committee woman up there and was a commissioner at the Floyd County Commission, um, and was a former panelist on Political Rewind until she decided to become a candidate uh, for office. So we're going to watch that race. Um, let's Chauncey, the 10th. Let's just briefly touch on the 10th, where you've also got lots of people running for the Republican nomination. Vernon Jones kind of has the uh, support of Donald Trump, uh, but uh, Mike Collins has been a very active candidate in that race as well. Are you there, Chauncey? I think we've lost uh, Chauncey's uh, uh, audio for a minute. Um, Patricia, can you weigh in on that? Yeah, I can also let you know that Dr. Paul Brown, the former congressman from that yeah. district, is also running. And when I'm in that district, I hear a lot about Dr. Brown. Um, I hear a lot about Mike Collins, a lot about Mike Brown. I spoke with some Republicans last week, uh, you know, head of a Republican committee who said they've never heard from Vernon Jones ever. And so that doesn't seem like a good spot to be in. Um, again, we don't know how that race is going to go, except I do expect a runoff because there are about 10 candidates running right now. It's going to be uh, really fascinating to watch how that race uh, 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 turns out. Um, all right. 
Um, with First of all, I want to um, talk just for a minute. Uh, we can't go into it in depth. But I want to talk about, um, Chuck, the fact that Democratic turnout, early voting, has obviously lagged behind Republican uh, voting. Some people are trying to make that appear that there's more energy for Republican candidates. I think the reality is, Chuck, there's just more competition. Uh, Stacey Abrams uh, is unopposed. Raphael Warnock's unopposed. But, but I've asked this before, and I'd love your take on this. What does lower turnout among Democrats do to some of those fascinating down-ballot Democratic races we'll be watching? For lieutenant governor, for attorney general, uh, for secretary of state, it makes it really more problematic for those campaigns to figure out how to win in those contests. You know, it was interesting because I asked that very question. I said did the podcast with Jen Jordan, and I asked that very question to her. And it wasn't just turnout that concerned Senator Jordan. It was also the fact that some reliable, typical Democrats are pulling those Republican ballots. She, I mean, she didn't say this, but you get a feel that she felt like some of those were her votes that were going the other, the other way. Um, so it's going to have an impact. The, the low turnout is going to have an impact. The, the siphoning of whatever, say two, three percent of the people that go over and pull the other side, other ballot, that's going to have an impact in those down races. I mean, there are only two running for attorney general, so it won't impact that from a runoff standpoint. But what have you got? Nine Democrats running for lieutenant governor. I mean, it's it's it, you know it feels like the Kentucky Derby, and you know and you and you sit there and look at that. I mean, that's kind of the way I'm looking. Um, it, it, I, Chauncey, I know you're back with us. Um, why don't you very quickly uh, weigh in for us on what you think you're going to be watching most closely uh, as returns start coming in tomorrow night? Well, one of the uh, biggest things to keep an eye on, I think, is kind of what happens on the ground. Um, obviously, we talked earlier about the early voting numbers, which suggest that there is a lot of enthusiasm um, amongst the electorate in general in participating in this. Uh, in this race, um, there are folks who are, you know, concerned about um, policing um, with like um, FD 441. Um, are we going to see signs of, 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 of the state enforcing um, some of these laws and uh, as, as people turn out to the polls um, and uh, some of, you know, some of the uh, voter suppression issues that were raised um, have been raised since 2020. So that's something that I'm definitely going to be keeping an eye on. I'm also interested, uh, one race we haven't talked about yet is the uh, Republican um, U.S. Senate race uh, with Herschel Walker in the field. Um, he's polled way out in front. Um, um, if he indeed secures nomination, as many um, expect that he will, we're looking at the first um, U.S. Senate race in the state of Georgia between two black candidates. That's obviously a historic milestone um, that uh, is going to capture the national attention uh, as, as it somewhat already has. There's been a lot of attack ads against um, Senator Walker, but it's something that's going to be very fascinating going forward. He, um, while a lot of people want to have a kind of, uh, you know, don't take him seriously as a candidate, um, Essie Cup wrote a really good piece um, for the Chicago Sun-Times yeah. earlier talking about this. You know, he's got a very common touch, um, and I don't know why people don't understand that um, anti-establishment uh, um, candidates have done very well in recent years. So there's a lot of evidence to show and uh, explain why um, uh, Walker has done so well. He's also obviously a huge football star in the state of Georgia and has a lot of cachet there as well. Oh, thank you for that summary of things you'll be watching. Adam, what about you? What are you going to be paying most attention to as returns come in? Well, I, I want to piggyback off of what Chuck was talking about with turnout and the Democrats is I think we're we have some strength. Some we're going to have some good Democrat turnout here because of us. We have a school board race with a school board president, so I think that's going to bring a lot of the Democrats out. Mm-hmm. Also, we have a U.S. House race for a challenger to Buddy Carter in the first district. We have a, a local attorney who was motivated to jump in after January the sixth and has raised uh, quite a bit of money for for Democrats and is in a three-way race. Uh, that includes um, a, a very familiar candidate, a black female candidate, whereas the the new the new person is a is a white male candidate. So we're going to be really curious to see how the vote breaks down in terms of that to see if we can't get a good candidate against Buddy Carter. 
Chuck, give us your uh, observations about uh, Tuesday night uh, in, in, very quickly. Uh, I'm going to be sitting on the desk eating popcorn. I, I'm very curious. In the, in, in the, uh, I'm going to have a big, big bucket of popcorn. But I'm curious with the Walker deal, and you know, and I think everybody's expecting Walker to win without a runoff. And this again is anecdotal, which Patricia's been talking about. But Latham Sadler was here a week ago in Columbus. He's got some Columbus connections through Synovus. But he had 75, 80 people at a, at, a, at a rally. Walker was here Saturday night in the same venue, and he had between 80 and 100. That, I don't know what that right. says. It'll be interesting to follow that. Uh, Patricia, you've got about uh, 45 seconds to give us your take on what you'll be looking at. On election night, I drink coffee. I don't eat popcorn. Um, uh, and I'm going to need it because I think it will be a late night for some of these races. We'll see. Oh, yeah, that's really going to be fascinating, especially races that could end up in a runoff, I think, right? Yes. And I also want to see how the election uh, administration goes. We've heard some concerns, and that'll be very important to us as well. I got to tell you, you all, what a terrific conversation. I can't believe how much ground you all were able to cover. Adam Van Brimmer, uh, Chauncey Elkhorn, Chuck Williams, Patricia Murphy. Thanks for a great setup for Election Day tomorrow. Uh, we're out of time for today. I do want to make one point for all of you out there. You know, normally our 9 o'clock show is rebroadcast at 2 in the afternoon. Wednesday we'll be with you live at both 9 and 2 because as Patricia just pointed out, who knows how late some returns might come in. We want to be sure we're on top of them at 2 o'clock on Wednesday afternoon. So join us for both of those shows. And in the meantime, we certainly hope you'll be back tomorrow on Election Day. If you haven't voted yet, it, I say over and over again, it's not just a right, it's a responsibility. I hope you get to the polls tomorrow. That's it for us today. I'm Bill Nygut. Until tomorrow, take care, stay healthy. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.